HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Hey, this is Kat, Communications Director of HRN, here with a preview of Episode 2 of Meat and 3. This week, we're talking pork. We'll learn the best way to make a BLT. I don't think I've ever successfully made a BLT just because I eat the bacon before any other part. How pitmasters and restaurateurs are helping put small-scale pig farmers back to work in Alabama. It's all about money. That's the bottom line. What pork has to do with economics. Farmers could be particularly affected by China's threat to levy its own tariffs on pork and soybeans. And with government. Basically all of politics is pork at this point. So tune in on Friday afternoon for your weekly serving of Meat in 3. And make sure you subscribe to be the first to know when new episodes air. Thank you, Dave. Hey, it's Monday. It's 12 o'clock, actually 12.01, and this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and um, today we're going to talk about water. I uh, A few months ago, I happened upon a piece, I think in AgriPulse, which is one of the many trades that I follow, and it was about a Kentucky, uh, Kansas town called Pretty Prairie, where uh, the people have um, sort of exceeded to the fact that their drinking water has been polluted by agricultural runoff. But for various reasons, which will be soon revealed to you, um, they have elected to sort of do nothing about it, and they just drink bottled water, and they don't complain. Um, So to talk more, I was so fascinated by this, because, of course, you know, we've all been following the story in Flint, and then I've covered on the show here a lot um, the water quality issues uh, in Des Moines, Iowa, with Bill Stowe, who was trying to... um, you know, to force uh, agricultural communities upstream to clean up their act, and that was not a success. So, so it was interesting to see that here's a town that has just kind of like said, "Okay, this is the way it is." Um, <laughs> and so, Elizabeth Royty, who is the author most recently of Bottle Mania: How Water Went on Sale and Why We Bought It, um, along with her previous books, Garbage Land on the Secret Trail of Trash and the Tapir's Morning Bath: Solving the Mysteries of the Tropical Rainforest, um, which were all named New York Times Notable Best Books of 
of the Year in 2005 and 2001. Um, anyway, she has also written on science and the environment uh, in Har- for Harper's, which is where this article appeared that we're going to discuss today on National Geographic, the New York Times Magazine, Outside, and other national publications. She is a frequent contributor to the New York Times Book Review and a contributing editor at Smithsonian on Earth and the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, which I support um, assiduously on my show because I just think they do amazing work. Um, but anyway, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I appreciate your presence here. Thanks so, for having me. Oh, it's a, it's, it's, this is such an interesting story. Um, so let's name it. It's called Drinking Problems. Very nice title, by the way. I wish I could think of titles like that. Um, Drinking Problems, a Kansas town confronts a tap water crisis. It was in Harper's a couple months ago. Is that right? It's in the May issue. Oh, May issue. Okay. Um, so tell us about the story and what got you interested in it. Um, well, I'd been writing about water issues for some time um, in a big way with the book you mentioned, Bottle Mania, yeah. which is about how we became a nation of bottled water drinkers and what's wrong with um, tap water and bottled water, what's right with them. And so that brought me to looking at um, municipal water supplies. Um, and I'd written about agricultural pollution um, a couple of years ago in the Central Valley, looking at nitrates from cow manure and fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And then um, I became aware of the Pretty Prairie situation. I don't know if it was from AgriPulse or from Circle of Blue, which is this great um, news service that's affiliated with the Pacific Institute in California. But the the town has such a great name. It stuck with me, Pretty Prairie. And I read about their very high nitrate levels. Um, uh, So I wanted to look into what was going on in this town. And thanks to support from from FERN, the Food and Environment Reporting Network, I went out there take a closer look last fall. Uh-huh. And um, let's talk about, so their nitrate, their water is heavily polluted with nitrates, which are coming from agricultural um, chemical applications on fields and running off into their water table. What, what are the health impacts of drinking nitrate-laced water? Well, it's a great question. It's, you know, at, at the root of all of this, the EPA has set a standard of 10 milligrams per liter in the water, mm-hmm. and um, there's Plenty of evidence that drinking water um, at levels higher than 10 parts per million will hurt infants or or fetuses, and it's um, closely associated with the blue baby syndrome. Yeah. It inhibits um, blood cells' ability to move oxygen to the brain. Babies turn blue. You rush them to the doctor. Um, not so many babies die of it, and it's really rarely diagnosed these days because most public water systems do a great job of keeping the, the nitrates lower than 10. But it's a little bit uncertain what the effects on adults are of high nitrate water. And there have been contradictory studies that show um, or contradict, they contradict each other. Um, mm-hmm. Some show that uh, high nitrates are linked with thyroid disorders or diseases or colorectal cancers or stomach cancers. Mm. But it's, the problem is that it's really hard to um, look at people's diets and say how much nitrate is coming from their water and how much is coming from food mm. because... 80 to 90% of the nitrate that most people consume does come from vegetables like dark leafy greens and beets. So it's really hard to, to separate where nitrates are coming from. Right. But I would think that in a town that has, you know, the incredibly, what well, was it incredibly? I was like 20 parts per million as opposed to 10, which is the regulation. Right. Um, that, was the, that was the level in, in Pretty Prairie. And higher. And higher. 23 was the, mm-hmm. the highest that I saw. So there's that population, and then there's also the Des Moines population that could be um, that could be studied in this in this way because of the very. I mean, I think their nitrate levels were even higher. 
Well, in they the were Raccoon high River. in the source water, but there's a fantastic utility there, right. the Des Moines Water Works, that, were, that installed expensive equipment to lower the nitrates to below the federal drinking standard. So right. if you're a customer of the utility, you're drinking water that is safe as far as nitrates go. Right, that's true. That's yeah, true. So, so you wouldn't be able to see that. System, um, first, we should say this town has um, like 300 water meters. There's a population of around 640 people, yeah. and they drink groundwater. It's pulled up from wells, and it's chlorinated, and other additives are put in to keep pipes from leaching metals and uh, sure. lead into the water. Um, <laughs> but they were not—they were not doing anything to remove the nitrates. And Des Moines has a. a um, De, uh, what is it called? Deionizing. I'm sorry, I'm blanking now it's on okay. the system that removes the nitrates, locks them up. Yeah, uh, reverse osmosis. No, they they have the um, ion exchange program. Oh, right, the right. Treat um, equipment in Des Moines, not reverse osmosis. That mm-hmm. is what Pretty Prairie ultimately decided to go with is reverse osmosis, which is more expensive. Um, and it, it hasn't been built yet, but they're heading that way. Well, you, you reported that the town has kind of been in the crosshairs of the Environmental Protection Agency for several decades because of that, um, because of their high uh, nitrate levels. But now <clears throat> the people in the town have an opportunity to have those regulations kind of defanged by the current <laughs> administrator, Mr. Pruitt. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what they want? I mean, you know, they all, like in your story, it said, you know, people were saying, well, I've been drinking this water for years. I've never had any problems. I don't see it as an issue. Like, you know, this is just government intervention that's not necessary and unwanted. Right. I mean. So, there's a couple things going on. So the town, it's it's 93% of the farmland in this county is rural. There, you know, everyone's a farmer or knows a farmer. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of people had grown up on farms that had much higher nitrate levels. They drank from wells and they were surrounded by, you know, they lived on dairy farms or whatever. Yeah. So there's this bedrock belief that it was okay to drink water with high nitrate levels. Um, they did not want the government hassling them in Pretty Prairie and telling them they had to spend all this money to build a plant. Right. And the State Department of Health um, uh, allowed the town to get away with this for quite some time by um, providing bottled water to the most vulnerable population, and that was to, to the babies. And so mm-hmm. there's only, about, like, six babies born in Pretty Prairie a year, and <laughs> if you're a mom or a dad of a baby, you could go down to the town hall, which doubles as the library, and you would get for free bottled water for, for the family. So right. nursing mothers would have would use the bottled water or um, pregnant women or infants themselves if they were mm-hmm. drinking formula, you could use this free bottled water. So the people in town thought that that was basically okay and they were protecting the most vulnerable. Um, but then as the levels of nitrates um, got higher and higher over the years, the Department of Health cracked down a bit and asked them to study various solutions to the problem. Um, but they really, they dragged this on for 20, more than 25 years. Wow. So what were some of the solutions? Ah, so, well, bottled water, first of all. Right. Um, Which doesn't, is, hardly it, seems it like just, a solution, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> bottled water for, for, I think anyone who wanted it could get it, but it was only the, um, you know, the people with the little babies who took advantage of that. And that, mm-hmm. like, cost the town $40 a month. Um, another solution that they tried was drilling a new well. They they did various studies to find groundwater that 
had lower nitrate levels, and they found an area that had only two parts per million, and so they switched the town system to that well. But over the months and years that they drew um, from the well, the nitrate levels went up to nine and then higher. So um, that was not a, a good, that was not a solution. Um, what other towns do sometimes when they have different sources of drinking water, they blend a low nitrate source with a high nitrate source to get a, a, um, a final mix that's less than 10 parts per million. Mm-hmm. And another solution that Pretty Prairie looked into is what's called consolidation. When you build a pipe to a town that has much better water, and you mm. buy water from them. And Pretty Prairie looked at their neighbor, Kingman, which is 10 or 12 miles away. Um, and they they ultimately decided not to do that. They didn't want to. There was some cost to them, but they, they didn't want to be um, subject to any water rate hikes that that town could Uh impose in the future. They wanted to be independent. Um, Then at one point, they came up with the idea of an ion exchange plant, the the same system that Des Moines uses, and it was going to cost them $800,000, and they were going to get a grant to help build it. And then they studied um, what happens. There's a waste product when you use this system, and they had no reliable place to dump the brine and the... um, I can't remember the name of what you have to dump afterwards. You've got these chemicals like that lined up with each other, and then you have to dispose of them. Uh-huh. Um, in Des Moines, they put them back into the river where they got them from, but um, Pretty Prairie doesn't have a source like that. They would have had to go into the landfill, and right. they were <coughs> not clear on what impact that would have and how much it would cost them, so they, they scotched that idea. Mm-hmm. And then they ended up with this plan to build a reverse osmosis plant, which is expensive and energy-intensive. Um, and as I said, they, they haven't started building it yet, but are supposed to soon. Hmm. Isn't reverse osmosis also the project, or the uh, process that you use to desalinate water? Am yes. I? Yeah. You use a lot of energy, and you force yeah. water through tiny, tiny holes uh, t- through membranes. Uh huh. Yeah. Wow. And so that that was like over a million dollars, if I recall, from yes, your article. And, and let's remind the listener that <clears throat> this is a town of you know less than. 700 people like right there's like they, 300 rate payers as you called it meter meter payers <clears throat> so how you know how how those people are supposed to come up with um what would that be like three thousand dollars per no more than that three hundred well, they ended up getting a six hundred thousand dollar grant from the feds and they got a 2.4 million dollar loan from the state so that's like a low interest loan um yeah and they've raised their water rates already um and they're going to raise them again but they're still not in, um, among the highest-rate communities in the country. They're still paying medium, um, medium sort of rates. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, to put it in perspective, the annual budget of this town is less than a million dollars. So <laughs> they're going to be paying off this loan for a very, very long time. Yeah, I mean that's a lot of that's a burden. Yeah. For <laughs> for for clean water. Yeah. I mean, I you know it it makes you want like. There are water. You've written a lot about water, so water. I mean, we're going to go off on a little tangent here. Water regulations seem to be like a very fluid. Forgive the pun. Um, a very fluid uh, set of regulations uh, across the country. It's like every state has different regs, kind of about who can access what water and how much, I guess. And and um, and certainly the EPA's regulations about um, how many parts per million of nitrates is. You know, how did they determine that that was the number? Like, well, first, let me 
correct you, the, all the states have to follow the federal law, the Safe Drinking Water right. Act. And right. so the feds set the levels of contaminants that Thank can you. be in yeah. the water, and they also tell the states what they must test for. So we're all on, we all have the same standards to meet. Okay. Thank and bottled you. water is similar, um, but has different requirements on transparency and how often they test and things like that. But let's just talk about public water supplies for right. now. Um, so how did they come up with this standard? Yeah. Um, they, there was evidence, so the standard was, wasn't that until the 70s, and there was a strong evidence that high nitrate level was linked with uh, blue baby syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually the EPA um, determines a safe level, and then they add a multiplier factor, um, like they times it by 100 and make the safe level 100 times the times, or... I'm a little fuzzy on this because I reported okay. this a while ago, but they put in a big margin margin of error. So yeah. they're overprotective. But some people complain that this standard of 10 parts per million isn't tight enough and that they allowed no uh, safety margin in this. Um, other people think that the standard, like, of course, people in Pretty Prairie think 10 parts per million is too tight and it should be allowable to have 15 or 20 parts because there's not enough evidence that it harms adults. Right. But I, of course... I, you can't yeah. have a two-tiered standard. That's the the problem. If there is evidence that it hurts babies, you can't say babies should have safe water, but everyone else can drink something else because, you know, utilities are monopolies. People don't choose their public water provider, and you right. have to have water that protects the most vulnerable. Wow, it's you know on the one you know obviously it's it makes perfect sense. The Clean Water Act is is a great piece of legislation. But when you look at the impacts on a small town like this, you, you really are, I'm kind of scratching my head. Like, obviously, these residents um, are not going to feel like they really should have to pay for a water quality plant fix that they don't feel that they need. Mm-hmm. How do the residents feel about having their water polluted by their farming neighbors? I mean, I guess you, you covered that before when you said, like, everybody knows a farmer is a farmer. I mean, right. um, what do the well, farmers do? I mean, aren't they concerned about this? Like, can, what what <laughs> so solutions the people, can they adopt? The farmers, it's really interesting. Pretty Prairie covers about half a square mile, and the farms are what surrounds it. And those people on the farms mm-hmm. are not drinking from the town supply. So the farmers feel like we're making a crop here. We've got great yields. We're feeding America. Yeah. They're exporting huge amounts of grain, and they can't do that without putting nitrogen on the fields. Um, right. So one thing, they're not paying for this... Um, reverse osmosis plant, their water rates aren't going up because they drink from private wells on their own property. Right. And many of them, they may have high nitrate levels in their wells, but they don't seem too concerned, or if they are, um, they probably put in a reverse osmosis system under their sink and protect themselves that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the people in town who are um, bridle against these higher rates, um, they'll... They don't like the higher rates, but they kind of throw up their hands and say, what can you do? The feds are making us do this, and they're not going to change the farmers' ways. Um, the farmers are their friends, they're their neighbors, and they, you know, at the center of town is a grain elevator and uh, fertilizer companies down the road, and their whole economic vitality is, is based on high yields and, and the farmers yeah. doing well. Right, so it right. keeps the community afloat. Mm. Wow, this is and this is a problem that is probably replicated all across the Corn Belt. 
Am I right? I mean, this they cannot be the only town suffering from this same problem. No, there's um, the uh, Environmental Working Group has has a great database on contaminants in drinking water, and they've identified 150-something towns, <sighs> very small towns in farming communities mm-hmm. with um, these super high nitrate levels, and they're mostly in Kansas and Texas, Oklahoma, and a little bit in, in California. <laughs> well, Kansas, uh, as we know, um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's my favorite. It's my hobby horse. Like when Senator, when uh, the when Sam Brownback was the governor there, mm-hmm. I was I proud. I tried to do a little feature on him almost every week <laughs> to show how absolutely abjectly the trickle down theory of economics um, was failing the state. Um, so I can imagine that um, high tech solutions. Uh, would not be something that the state would even be all that interested in funding necessarily, or certainly. Uh, let me wait. Let me rephrase that question. Okay. So they they applied for a state or a federal grant to help build this plant. A federal grant. Okay. So now in the Republican model, aren't you not supposed to have money come from the federal government? It's supposed to be all states. Yeah, but I I know that the USDA has. There have been suggested cutbacks and a whole restructuring of the, the rural development department of mm-hmm. the USDA, and I'm uh, not sure that this has all come through because they did, when they first applied for this grant to build the plant, they they were allowed to apply for only 500000 and then they made a mistake on the application. Mm. Everything got put off by a year, and when they reapplied, they were eligible for $600,000, mm. so that was surprising to me. Um, the budget hasn't been cut yet, but there are fears that uh, that Trump's wishes will come true. And, yeah. and we know that EPA budgets have been cut back. There's fewer Absolutely. people out there inspecting and doing the work and telling these towns uh, how they could be better protecting their water supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you noted that the government won't want to spend the money on, on fixing the plants, but we have to talk about another solution to this problem, which is the upstream solution of reducing the amount of nitrogen that leaches into groundwater and surface water yeah. farms. Well, you wrote the story. I mean, you were you you followed the Bill Stowe story and the Des Moines, uh, you know, him suing the upriver counties. I did like three or four programs with him on this story because yeah. I thought it was so interesting. Um, but he sued, for people who haven't tuned into those shows or, or into this story, Bill Stowe was, uh, as uh, Elizabeth said, the, the, um, you know, the guy who ran the Des Moines Waterworks. And when the water became so polluted that his aging machinery could no longer keep up with cleaning it and he didn't have money to buy a new one, he decided to take the radical step of suing the upriver counties to force them to improve their tile drainage so that there wasn't so much um, pollution leaching into the ground, into the Rocky River, the Raccoon River, and what was the, there was two rivers involved. But anyway, and then that case was thrown out of court, shockingly. Well, maybe not so shockingly. <laughs> but um, so that was, that was his solution. But how, I mean, are the, so to go back to the farmers in Pretty Prairie, um, how open are they to the idea of improving their, uh, stewardship of the land when it comes to applying nitrates? Um, part of a consent decree um, in these 25 years, the town was warned about its nitrate levels, and part of a consent decree with the state was that they would um, do various things, and they would be allowed to serve water that was 15 parts per million if they 
studied the issue, if they looked at alternatives, and if they formed a groundwater um, protection um, committee. Uh-huh. Um, and this this groundwater protection squad asked farmers to <laughs> to be more conservative with their use of fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And, and if you ask the farmers, they'll say yes, that they, they use less, but many of them use less over a larger area. Um, it's unclear how how much mm-hmm. nitrogen use, nitrogen fertilizer use has declined there because, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, but there's, I wrote another piece for National Geographic about farmers in Iowa yeah. who are being leaned on much more heavily than the Kansas farmers to to decrease the nitrogen loss from their fields um, because Iowa is a huge contributor to uh, of nitrates, nitrogen to the dead zone in the yeah. Gulf. Right, Kansas right. is too, but Iowa's much more culpable. Um, and so cover crops were a big part of the answer, or proposed answer in Iowa and Kansas. Um, farmers, as I wrote in the Nat Geo story, are using saturated buffers and restoring oxbows and planting prairie strips and, right. uh, yeah, all these tools that farmers can use to stop nitrogen from running off their fields. But it's a, a bit different situation in Kansas that Soils are different. The, the geology is different. Um, but what people are asking Kansas farmers to do, and what I talk about in the Harper story, is just uh, um, planting cover crops. And something like one percent of Kansas farmers use cover crops. Mm-hmm. And I heard a lot of reasons why uh, it's not a big deal there. Um, it's cover crops cost money. The seed costs money. Yep. Planting the cover crops is expensive to, you know, run your tractors over the fields on yeah. the fuel, and then you have to go over the, uh, your fields again to terminate the crop or... Um, Flatten it or whatever you do right, to it. Right, get yeah. rid of the cover crop so you can plant your cash crop. Yeah. So it's never really caught on in the way that it has in some other places. Huh. Although I, I, it hasn't caught on like wildfire across the country. Nationally, only 3% of farmland is cover cropped. And that's just that that is something that will have to change. Yeah, that's something that's got to go into the farm bill. It seems to me that farmers must be incentivized to grow cover crops and to, you know, create ways of buffering their land from groundwater. So, I mean, you know, that's something where the federal government, I think, really does play a role. And it's really unfortunate um, that, uh, you know, the farming community is is you know, and I, I mean this with complete respect, but I mean, they just, they're not interested in having the government in their business. Right. You know? <laughs> well, you know, I think Bill Stowe doesn't think that we should incentivize farmers any more than we already do. He says, like, they, farmers and I get a billion dollars a year and yeah. they should pay for these conservation practices themselves. But there, there is help out there, and the feds um, do offer, like, $25 an acre for first-time cover croppers. Um but farmers say it's not enough money, and it doesn't it cover it year possibly. after year, and um, they don't have time to put these crops in and get them out in time. Um, right. What, one thing I talk about in the story is this time crunch. Um, as the uh, weather is changing, yeah. um, fields are don't always, with these intense storms, fields get really soggy, and equipment these days is huge. It, it weighs a lot, and farmers can't bring the machines out onto their fields until the land is sufficiently dried out. So they're a window of opportunity for harvesting the cash crop and getting the cover crop in, and then on the other end, uh, terminating and starting the new one is is 
very much crunched down. Yes, I've, I've heard that also. That's so yeah. interesting. It is. It's a real conundrum. I mean, I, I'm not sure what the answer is there, but I know there is one in that, you know, extension schools and uh, land-grant universities, you know, if they're not studying up on this, they, <laughs> they really need to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of communities, a lot of uh, land-grant universities are obliged to study what they're funded for by companies, you know, agrochemical companies. But that's another story. Let's talk a little bit about those, um, because one of the things that you point out is that the, or was it in your, maybe it was in the blue circle of blue, but the the clean, the the operating systems that clean the water actually require very uh, sophisticated technical skills, apparently, and um, technicians who would have to move to someplace like Pretty Prairie. Uh, well, in order to operate these machines, so how is how is that going to be affected? Well, Pretty Prairie has two um, part-time maintenance workers. I I met them, and they're the ones who grab water samples, and mm-hmm. they also do road repair. And they said that if the plant got built, um, that they would go for more training, and they have to get um, some advanced certificates, um, mm-hmm. and that they would stay in town. That they were from the town, and. Uh, that would be that would be their new job. So there'll be more training, and they'll probably have to not have to. They will deserve <laughs> higher salaries. So, yeah. yeah, operating these plants is is not cheap. But um, I guess the point I was making is that other small towns have had trouble attracting skilled technicians to run these plants. People don't want to live in tiny little towns. No, not necessarily. I mean, I, I get that. <laughs> yeah. I'm from a small town. <laughs> I've, no, I mean, Pretty Prairie is wonderful. I'm not saying, like, yeah. what, you know what I'm saying. Um, I do. I not, do. It's not for everyone, but for the, uh, I don't know, people in Pretty Prairie were amazing, and that's one of the things that impressed me was their propensity for sticking around through thick and thin. They love their hometown, right. and if they went away to college or they went away for a job, they, they came back, and they were buried in their hometown cemetery, and, uh, yeah, there's... Yeah, no, it's history. history. It's your history. I get that. I wouldn't want to leave it if I were my, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want to move there, but I also wouldn't want to leave. I would love to, you know, it's where your roots are. Mm -hmm. That's where you need to be. I get that. You know, what's interesting is that it seems like, um, you know, more non-farmers are are up in arms about about water quality issues than than farming communities. And I, I find that an interesting disconnect as well. You know, I would think that farming communities and farmers especially would be very upset and concerned about water quality issues because, I mean, in the end, when you pollute water, um, you know, even if it's something that appears benign like nitrates, you know, there are other chemicals, agrochemicals that are going into these into these groundwater uh, facilities in towns like that. And especially, as you said, in Iowa, which is not only a big grain producing state, but also a huge state for pork. And so there's lots and lots of pollution from pork farms. And, you know, it's different. It's, you know, E. coli pollution. It's, you know, it's other stuff, particular matter. And, and people are just, I, you know, I'm just kind of baffled by the complacency um, of farmers about that just being okay. You know, well, like yeah. they live in these communities. It's not okay to do this. <laughs> well, a lot of, it depends on geography, I think, some of it. And, Farmers who don't see the impact immediately, if their wells are okay and the mm. water is flowing downstream, they don't really worry about what's happening one state away in their reservoir that they drink from, that 
maybe is having these hazardous algal blooms because of farm runoff, or they're not linking their farm with what's going on in uh, the Gulf of Mexico. But I have read about farms who drink from wells that are contaminated with E. coli or um, with nitrates from their neighbors or even themselves. And, you know, when it hits home, when it's your own well and your family, or even your livestock. In Iowa, I heard about um, some pig farmers who had high mortality among pig, piglets because of the night they linked it with the nitrate levels. Oh, so blue baby syndrome in piglets. Yeah. Which would make total sense, right? Yeah. I mean, given our close proximity to their anatomy. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating, Elizabeth. Really yeah. interesting. How much money do you think the nation's utilities are spending on cleaning up water supplies that are polluted by agrochemicals and agriculture? It's- um, I have the USDA did a report in 2011, and they said that utilities were spending 4.8 billion to remove nitrates. But that number, it's old and it's really low because mm-hmm. there's much more attention paid to nitrates now. There's more nitrates on the land and in the water, and that has to be removed. So um, I spoke to people who thought that it was well over five billion a year. Yowzer, that's really shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a quick break and uh, we'll come right back with Elizabeth Royty. Um, she is a writer for uh, most recently Harper's and we're talking about clean water in Kansas. Stay tuned. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Searchois which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking today with Elizabeth Royty. Um, she wrote a story called Drinking Problems, which I just, I love that title. You're so smart. Um, drinking Hi, Problems. <laughs> no, 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 take credit for it. Come on, I'm not interviewing the editor. Um, a Kansas town confronts a tap water crisis, um, and that is in the May issue of Harper's Magazine. It was um, sort of co-sponsored, I suppose, by the Food and Environmental Food and Environment Reporting Network. Is that how that guys do you guys work that? Like they they pay you part, and Harper's pays you part, or they place they, it, or yes, they supported me while I I researched the story to see if it was actually a a, a worthwhile story, uh-huh. and then they supplement the fee that Harper's pays. Oh my God, how wonderful. Otherwise you can't do these long, deeply reported pieces um, for the rates that many magazines want to pay these Oh, no days. kidding. I wrote a 2,000 word article for a you know, a publication I admire and I like a lot. Um, I will not name it here and my fee was $400. 
took me, you know, (laughs) took me two months to write it. Yeah, because I'm not, and unlike you, I'm not actually a natural writer is really, really hard for me. (laughs) I find it, you know, it's it's agonizing. I don't do it very often, but I I had a good story idea. Anyway, never mind. Enough about me. Let's talk about you, Elizabeth. Um, No, let's talk about, um, (laughs) let's talk about like solutions to this. So if no one opts to clean up either their act in applying fertilizer or uh, building, paying for building the expensive plants to clean the water. You know, what, what's the outcome going to be about uh, over that when it comes to water shortages, when water becomes more scarce or is so polluted it can't be, you know, really used in anything but sort of gray water applications? I, I can't imagine that we would get to that point. Because, really? I mean, you can't live without clean water, and we do have federal standards. We have rules, and uh, we they need to be more tightly enforced. I mean, we see we saw what happened in Flint and so many other mm. small towns. Um, but, yeah, the amount of... There, there is no pure water out there, um, but towns just can't exist without water. So if just to sort of... This is just a um, theoretical exercise, but a town would... would people would move away. I mean, I suppose you could keep farming and the farms could be worked by robots. Yeah. And, uh, but people can't live in a town without clean water right. and it'll, businesses can't operate. And I suppose you'd have more and more people fighting over ever smaller supplies of, of decent water. Hmm. But we're not going to get to that point. We, 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 know, how to, we know how to prevent uh, nitrogen from running off fields into the water, and we do know how to take it out on the back end. Right. Much more money. So, I so that drives up the cost of food. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I visualize with water is, um, is I see more and more corporations buying up water rights and then, um, you know, putting in the money but selling the water to townsfolks in a way that is not as... Um, equitable as it as it is today. I mean, many people pay water rates already. But Wait, I, I... Are you I, talking about water transfers, buying up, like, farmers' water rights? Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Well, or just buying up, say, like, Nestle decides to go into, you know, Pretty Prairie and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy up your water, I'm going to clean your water, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to sell it back to you mm-hmm. um, at a certain rate. I mean, I wonder if we're heading in that direction just because of, um, you know, for instance, in the case of Pretty Prairie, they just don't have the money to do this. Nor do they have really the political will, but mostly they don't have the money. Well, they're they're doing it, and their water rates will reflect it, it mm-hmm. uh, you know, to some extent. But um, that's interesting. Like, Nestle could go in there. Yeah. Uh, for, but it, they wouldn't, it wouldn't be spring water because they don't have springs there. It would be groundwater, and then they would filter the bejesus out of it and yeah. call it Nestle Pure Life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I mean, you're the bottled water girl. I mean, yeah, this yeah. shouldn't um, be it like... It would be incredibly expensive for people, and yeah. they'd move away to a place where, you know, you can buy a 1,000 gallons of water for pennies, like, you know, most good-sized cities in, in the U.S. It's pretty yeah. cheap to drink your eight glasses a day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Tap water. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I see a time coming when, when uh, you know, there was a story not long ago. Of course, I'm only off on a tangent here. You'll have to forgive me. Um, but uh, I saw a story not long ago about, you know, Nestle acquiring the right to pump even more water out of a town in Michigan. Yeah. And um, I'm sure you saw that too. And uh, I just, it got me off on a train of thinking, like of how, 
you know, how eventually, you know, towns without even realizing it could find themselves having, you know, given away, essentially given away their water uh, for, you know, a, for a, a quick economic boost and then kind of living to rue that day mm-hmm. 10 years down the road. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's sort of the, the scenario we are creeping toward um, even now. Uh, just because of problems like the one that you describe in your in your story about Pretty Prairie, because eventually, you know, who's some towns are not going to be able to keep up with having to uh, clean their water in order to to drink it. And but I if s- they can't keep up with cleaning it, they're not going to be able to keep up with buying little bottles of plastic bottles of water. Well, that's why I, I'm thinking that a that a big company would come in. And then um, they wouldn't be buying little plastic bottles of water. It would just be coming through a plant that was monetized by them paying rates that are far more capitalist mm-hmm. um, than they are now, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, we're off on a, on a silly tangent here. I'm sorry. It's yeah, just like, like futurizing. A, a theory that some anti-water privatization groups have, have yeah. uh, floated. But I've never uh, delved too deeply into that scenario and how that might happen. Um, I do worry more about... Bottlers coming in, collecting water, you know, they, they monitor flows and they know how much towns use and they, how much they want. And, right. But they don't always take into consideration the needs of the environment and what nature needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say that, that every gallon is replaced naturally and they're only taking extra water. But to me, uh, I feel like there is no extra water in nature. That yeah. It all goes somewhere for <laughs> For a reason. For a reason and a use. And, yeah. <laughs> yes, I feel the same way. Well, I'm, I'm very much with those anti-privatization people. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I, you know, the idea that water will eventually be controlled by, you know, people like Warren Buffett or Nestle or something like that is absolutely terrifying to me. Right. But, Idiocracy. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Ron, I, what, what was it called? Brawny, the, the water that came out oh. of the taps. Everyone irrigated their fields with the privately owned product <laughs> <laughs> i do not know that story that's great I, you have to see that movie it's yeah yeah i fashion. obviously do i obviously do um i had one more thing i wanted to float by you about this so you were saying earlier that there are ways to mediate um you know nitrogen runoff we talked about cover crops and buffer strips and prairie strips and stuff like that mm-hmm. and how much they cost the average farmer. So I just, I just wanted to revisit that concept for a second. Um, and in the context of the farm bill, because I'm asking everybody what they think about what the farm bill should contain. And do you see any progress towards, um, you know, well, I know Bill Stowe said people shouldn't be incentivized, but like the farmers in Pretty Prairie, how rich are they? You know, how big, is, how big are their farms? You- never ask a farmer how rich they are, you know, <laughs> they don't even want to tell you how many acres they have. Um, <laughs> um, and they're all, you know, they say the farm economy sucks now. They've yeah, produced so much grain that the prices have dropped pretty low. Um, yeah. And there's giant stockpiles of wheat from harvested in 2016 that are waiting to be sold while they continue to, to grow more and more right. wheat. And, you know, with the trade talks uh, ongoing, they don't know what they'll be able to export. Um, yeah. So things are very uncertain. The farmers there have, um, I talked to farmers who have between 1,000 and 3,500 acres. I'm mm. sure there's bigger bigger landowners yes. out there. Um, I don't know. They all get subsidies. I checked 
some of their names in the databases. And oh, yeah. yeah. Of course, they're all getting farm subsidies. All right. So then they should freaking pay for this. There's no excuse. I mean, I always think of like the smaller farmers, you know, like the guys that I know in Rhode Island or whatever, you know, they have a few hundred acres and you want to talk about tight margins. Yeah. <laughs> but the guys with the 300 and, you know, 3,500 acres who are selling, I mean, it's hard to make a buck on, on uh, grains right now, but, you know, right. the, they do get the subsidies, as you said. Right. So, well, Elizabeth, the time has come for you to promote yourself shamelessly. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is a good discussion. Thanks for having it, it, me on. Oh, it was um, a pleasure. Really good. Yeah. So you have a website. Tell me where it is. Oh, it's just Reut.com, my last name, R-O-Y-T-E.com. Mm-hmm. You'll see some of my recent work. Um, for shameless promotion, I'll say I have a story in National Geographic for June. Um, the whole, Most of the issue is devoted to plastics, marine plastics. Oh, good. Pollution. And I have a piece in there about the potential health impacts of microplastics in seafood. Yeah. That's my bit of it, but Uh-oh. it's a really cool issue. <laughs> um, it's kind of heartbreaking. Um, but yeah. That out. And then um, you know, a couple other stories. And I'm headed to Boulder in mid-August for a nine-month fellowship at the University of Colorado. So I'm going to be out of oh, the... congratulations. Ma- yeah, out of the magazine writing game for a little while. Um, well, that might be a relief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to be doing on the fellowship? Um, taking classes, on seminars, and looking at some of the um, impacts of the Trump administration on public lands. Yeah, that's going to be good. Well, we didn't really talk enough about Pruitt and the fact that, you know, when we were talking about the EPA regulations and the Clean Water Act, it's, it's not a sure bet that those will survive this administration, would you say? Uh, no, right. Uh, the um, waters of the U.S. is... Yeah. Still in limbo, but yep. it could lead to a whole lot more pollution in uh, drinking water supplies. Yeah. Well, stay tuned, folks, because I'm sure Elizabeth will be writing more about that subject after her fellowship. Congratulations again. Thank you. And thanks so much. And this story, uh, should you choose to read it, um, is in the May issue of Harper's. Um, and then you've got the great story coming up on microplastics in fish uh, in June in um, Natural, National Geographic, right? They're really doing some great work. I love Nat Geo. All right, my dear, thank you so much for this. Thank you to my sponsor, Wisconsin Cheese. And thanks, as always, to my mighty engineer, David Tatashore. And uh, see you next week with another great show. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.